I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Hey, I wanted to tell you about another show you might like. Unpacked by Afar is the acclaimed weekly podcast that discusses the most captivating and challenging topics in the travel industry. It's a show that'll help you plan your next adventure outdoors or across the globe. This season, Unpacked host and experienced travel writer Aislinn Green is traveling across North America to give you the best tips for your next trip. You'll also hear from seasoned travelers and industry professionals on how to hack travel rewards programs and what experiences should be on your must-do list. Don't miss out. Follow Unpacked by Afar wherever you get your podcasts. So, hey everyone, I'm Sam Evans-Brown here with Taylor Quimby because we are once again going to feature an episode of Patient Zero, which is our spin-off side project that you've been hearing here on the podcast feed. Hey, Taylor. Hey. How you doing? I am just plugging away. You're exhausted. <laughs> I see it in your face. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Can we can we like recap just a tiny bit? Sure. People have heard episode one here on Outside In. Mm-hmm. They're skipping episode two. Well, you shouldn't, but they are. <laughs> so episode two is available to those who want to scoot over to the Patient Zero feed. Yeah. We encourage you to do so. But uh, if you don't, what's the short version? Okay, so at the end of the first episode, we heard about the story of Polly Murray and her family. They're experiencing all these crazy symptoms. She is convinced that there is something going on, not just in her family, but in the community of Lyme, Connecticut. And so she calls the state health department. And at the very end of the episode, we hear uh, that a man named Dr. David Snydman has answered the call and is set to begin an investigation. So in episode two, we hear about that investigation. And what we hear is basically that Lyme disease was really hard to figure out because it caused all these different symptoms, and it was really hard to find the pathogen causing it. The whole process ended up taking, depending on how you're counting, somewhere between seven and nine years. And a lot of people were left feeling confused and frustrated. Hmm. And that pretty much gets us to this episode, which takes a break from the history and controversy of Lyme and kind of just dives into biology. 
One of my favorite things that has happened in the past couple weeks is the review that was left calling the podcast hilariously overproduced. That's like, <laughs> that's my signature style. And you know, that was still a five-star review. And I was like, kind of overjoyed that this person both got me and like got me if you know what I mean <laughs> I felt seen all right so get ready for a hilariously overproduced trip into the human body everyone <laughs> is that the tick right there the yep the big nasty looking <laughs> thing yeah wow uh, so this is Amblyum ovarium that I'm showing you right now. The female, she's about the size of maybe like a green grape. This is Colleen Evans, who until recently was the figurative crypt keeper for one of the world's strangest zoological attractions. One composed entirely of dead parasites. Yeah, so I am Colleen Evans. I am the collections manager for the U.S. National Tick Collection. And right now she's talking to lucky college student Mary Montgomery who we hired to tour the collection with a microphone. Uh, but she would have been about the same size as a male when she started feeding. He's about the size of like a pencil. She's showing her a big, fat bloodsucker, a species of tick that feeds exclusively on Central American sloths. Any animal really you could think of, there's probably a tick that feeds on it. Mammals, sure, that you probably knew. But did you know ticks feed on birds? Ticks from penguins um, and puffins, all kinds of animals. They feed on reptiles. There's even a species that has evolved to survive underwater by feeding on sea snakes. Um, and what they do is they actually go inside of the sea snake's ears. There are ticks on every continent in the world, including Antarctica. And they have achieved this awesome feat by virtue of being hard to detect and hard to remove from the animals upon which they feed. This one is my particular favorite. This is Cosmioma hippopotamensis. Uh, so again, it's very pretty. It's got a lot of ornamentation, um, so they're very gold. But also, they feed specifically on hippopotamus, but very specifically inside their anal canal. So they feed inside <laughs> hippopotamus butts. Um, and it's one of those things that I have no idea who figured that out. Um, the scientific name for ticks is Akari, like Atari with a C instead of a T. They're not technically insects, but like spiders and mites, they hail from the arachnid family. And usually, green grapes aside, they're tiny. Akari comes from the Greek. Roughly, it means a small thing. Which reminds me of a quote from Lord of the Rings. It is a strange fate that we should suffer so much fear and doubt over so small a thing. In spite of the name, from an epidemiological perspective, ticks are hardly small. They're one of the most efficient carriers of disease on the planet. They're Trojan horses, miniature warships in disguise, sailing on the bodies of animals everywhere and transporting an army of pathogens inside their bellies. The way the ticks are stored is in jars and then in vials. And any vial can have anywhere from one to thousands of ticks in it, depending. Um, so I mean, you can see this collection. Hardly more than a single carpeted room cramped with head-high filing cabinets has at least one million of these little bastards, the oldest of which were collected more than 100 years ago. So we have some ticks collected during the Smithsonian Roosevelt safaris in the early 1900s. So of course Theodore Roosevelt is very famous. But the tick we're primarily concerned with isn't unusually big or beautiful. It doesn't hide inside the ears of snakes or other more exotic places. It was not collected by a former U.S. president. It's a generalist happy to feed on any number of small to medium-sized mammals or birds. A humble arthropod, just bigger than a poppy seed. A small thing. This one is Ixodes scapularis, so that is the deer tick. Uh, that's the one that is associated with Lyme disease. 
I'm Taylor Quimby. Do you remember the name of the bacteria that causes Lyme disease? It's okay if you don't, it's a weird name. Borrelia burgdorferi. Say it with me, Borrelia burgdorferi. I get it, Lyme disease is confusing. And a lot of that confusion is because nobody has ever taken the time to explain the basic biology of the disease. So today we're taking a break from the history and controversy surrounding Lyme disease. We're going to shrink your butt down like Miss Frizzle and take you on a magic school bus podcast ride inside your body and inside the body of a deer tick, which from here on out, we will be calling by a more accurate name, the black-legged tick. What is Lyme disease? How does it get in you? And what does it do once it's there? This is the part that we know before we get to the parts that we don't. This is Patient Zero. There was just so much to learn. Um, I could never um, get bored of them. <laughs> this is Dr. Monica Gulia Nuss, assistant professor of molecular biology at the University of Nevada, Reno, a woman who has spent much of her career studying mosquitoes and ticks. People call me a bug lady. So that's <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, they're 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 both gross. So uh, I mean, uh, well, I don't think so. I think they're beautiful. Mmm, the humble black-legged tick. There's a lot about these parasites that we're going to save for a future episode. The way they get around, what they eat, how they get Lyme disease themselves. All great questions, but ones we're putting aside for the time being. Instead, we're going to focus on the head. Uh, Ticks don't have a head. Um, That's a common misconception. Um, Ticks are kind of like this weird sack of body parts. Most of their body is really consists on a gut. Unlike insects, which you may remember have three body parts, the thorax, abdomen, and head, The black-legged tick has a tear-shaped body and a thing on top. It's not a face. It has no eyes. It's totally blind. Scientists often call it by a very gross, very memorable name, the mouth parts. These are the bits that work their way into your skin. On the outside are the palps, which as the name suggests, are used to feel around for a good spot to bite. In between them are two sawed blades that rub themselves into the skin and then flex backwards, which pulls the most important part, a spiky sort of tube, into your body. The tube has backwards-facing barbs, sort of like a harpoon, so that it's really hard to pull it out. And once it's embedded inside the skin, the tick can start secreting special chemicals through it, like a straw, and spitting out all sorts of stuff to help prepare its meal. Ticks, in that first 24 hours, they are not usually actively feeding. They're doing things like injecting you with antihistamines. Antihistamines, so you don't get a big welt, which might tip you off to the fact that you've got a tick on you. And anticoagulants. Anticoagulants, so your blood doesn't clot. Uh, they locally immunosuppress you. They have cementing agents. Cementing agents to literally bond the tick's mouth parts to your body. So they're doing all this other stuff in order to make sure that you don't notice you've been bit. Ticks have so many superpowers in this moment that we're actually utilizing them to make better drugs for humans. 
There are anticoagulants on the market, synthetic blood thinners, derived from similar compounds excreted by leeches and ticks. Anyway, once they're done doing all of this, numbing you, gluing to you, medicating you, prepping their meal, then, after a good day or more, they start to drink in earnest. At the same time as they're taking blood, they're also secreting this saliva into our bloodstream. Secreting saliva. Aside from being gross to most people, this is maybe the most important thing that's happening. Because if a tick were only drinking blood, then it wouldn't be so good at spreading disease. It's the spit that the Lyme pathogen uses to travel into your body. Do you remember what it's called? Borrelia burgdorferi. Nice. Now, I've got some good news and some bad news. First, the good news. You won't contract Lyme disease the second a tick burrows into your skin. Some refer to this as the 24 to 48 hour rule. Now, why would that be? Do you remember where Willy Bergdorfer found the Lyme disease spirochete? So he provided me with um, some of the intestines of these ticks. Inside one of the ticks' organs, the midgut. That's where Lyme disease is hiding, waiting for just the right moment to begin multiplying. Replication means you're using resources. This is Sam Telford, a medical entomologist and longtime Lyme researcher. And what he's saying is that for a bacteria to grow and multiply and move, it's going to need some energy, food. And that food comes from the host. The tick feeds on you, but Lyme feeds on the tick. That's not good for your host. You're using their fat reserves, which means that they're less fit. They won't, you know, that's a negative selection pressure. So what really is happening is that the the bacteria goes dormant. Translation. If the Lyme bacteria grew willy-nilly all the time, it would harm its gracious eight-legged hosts, the ticks. Kill them even. And then the bacteria would never spread somewhere new. It would be the end of the line. So instead, the bacteria goes to sleep nestled in the tick's midgut like a sci-fi film astronaut cryogenic deep-freeze chamber, traveling to new worlds and new frontiers on autopilot. But once the tick thrusts its mouth parts into your skin, the temperature goes way up, a sign that the bacteria, the astronaut, has arrived at its desired location. The change in temperature from ambient to your skin That temperature differential is a signal for the bacteria and the other pathogens transmitted by the ticks to wake up. After the tick has done all the work to prep its meal, it starts drinking blood. That gives the bacteria a food source too, so it can multiply without hurting the tick. And it starts traveling from the midgut up to the tick's salivary glands, where eventually it can get spit out into a new host. Again, this process takes time. Thus, the 24 to 48 hour rule. And so it's not just this fantasy that, you know, with 24 to 48 hours, because we say it is, uh, empirically there are studies, because some poor graduate student had to s- sit up all night and pull ticks off every 12 or 6 hours and see whether the animal became infected. If you can't tell by his tone, Sam Telford knows that this subject, like nearly all of them in Lime World, is a little bit controversial. And that's because, if you're hanging out in Lime World, there is a different narrative. Anecdotal stories about people who get bit for just a few hours, but still get Lyme disease. So what's the story here? Why the discrepancies? For starters, even the experts will acknowledge that the 24 to 48 hour rule is more like a guideline than a law of gravity. 
Ticks do not operate like clockwork, and you could get Lyme after only 23 hours of feeding. It's just less likely. And there is another explanation that I find especially interesting. Some ticks may have started feeding on an animal, kick-started the replication of Lyme disease, only to fall off the host, find a new one, and bite again. These are referred to as pre-fed ticks. Sound unlikely? Maybe. But when I was in Lyme, Connecticut, knocking on doors along Joshua Town Road, where the first few cases of Lyme disease were reported in the 1970s, I couldn't help but notice that nearly all of the people I met there had dogs. So what happens if a tick infected with Lyme disease bites your dog, then gets knocked off onto the carpet or bed, only to climb up your leg and dig in? Evidence shows that if that happens, transmission time can be much lower. One study on mice found 83% of pre-fed ticks gave their host Lyme disease in less than 24 hours. The messiness of the real world is hard to recreate in the lab. If you get a tick off you quickly, it is very unlikely you'll get Lyme disease. But can we say 100% for sure that you won't? I would humbly say no, because nothing in science is 100%. And this is where I'll tell you the bad news. Remember good news and bad news? The bad news is that there's one more, frankly, much more plausible explanation for why people think they get Lyme after just a few hours. Ticks are small. And some of these reports probably come from people who were bitten by two of them, maybe even weeks apart, but only noticed the second bite. You can't pull off a tick if you don't know it's there. Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Each story from our guests and listeners is totally unique and utterly personal. We love hearing about your first impressions when visiting someplace new. My first trip to the Patagonia region was on the Argentine side. I couldn't believe the expansive territory. It's like being in Tibet. The emptiness and the harshness really I found transformative. Or a story told when safely back on dry land. You know, things happened every single day. I ran out of gas on a jet ski in the middle of the ocean. And I was like, what if a sea creature comes to eat me? But then I'm delusional. I was like, I'll make friends with it and it won't eat me. And maybe I'll ride that back to shore. <laughs> That's how it works. <laughs> yeah. Join me, Lale Arakoglu, every week for more adventures on women who travel, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Remember the magic school bus? In the third episode, Ralphie, the one who wears a green shirt with an R on it for some reason, gets a fever. So radical elementary school teacher Miss Frizzle shrinks the titular magic school bus and takes the class on a tour of the human body. I thought blood was red. That stuff is clear. That's right, Ralphie. The reason I'm talking about this absolute classic is because I'm about to rip it off wholesale. So let's zoom in and figure out what happens once the pathogen that causes Lyme enters your body. The tick is crawling, undetected. It finds a good spot inside the moist, warm cave of a human armpit. 
it cuts its way into the skin and pulls its mouth parts into place and starts swapping fluids with you, the host. And along for the ride are a bunch of corkscrew-shaped bacteria, spirochetes, the agent of Lyme disease. Well, the most important thing is just a single cell. It's a very simple organism. You may remember the dulcet tones of microbiologist Alan Barber here. He'll be our guide on this fantastic voyage. But it, if you, what it looks like is like a, uh, a snake on the ground. And it has this kind of um, these little motors that have uh, sort of hair-like projections come out of the cell and like a, an outboard motor, you know, that's rotating, and that gives the motion to the, the bacteria. Remember those little motors. They're going to be important later on. But zoom in even further, and you'll notice that the skin of the spirochete, so to speak, is very textured. In fact, it almost looks like it's covered in weird little spikes. spikes or, or I think I would say it's more like a forest with sort of the, the trees, the canopy on top. These are outer surface proteins. Why do you care about them? Because they stimulate your immune system. Your body makes immune cells that respond to the specific shape of that little canopy of trees. You can get Lyme disease more than once because different strains of Borrelia have different arrangements of spikes, so your body doesn't immediately recognize it if you get it again. These proteins are the key component of the Lyme disease vaccine, called Lymerix, that was commercially available in the late 90s. And they're the key component of the Lyme vaccine you can still get today for your dog. This is a very ancient form of um, responding to, to pathogens that, you know, we share with uh, fruit flies and worms and things like that. In Lyme disease, the immune system is, well, it's sort of everything. It's the system that will hopefully fight off the infection, but it's also what triggers your symptoms. The flood of stuff that sweeps in to fight off an illness, white blood cells, immune cells, little chemical messengers that call for backup, all of it brings inflammation. A lot of the symptoms I think that people experience, some of the signs of disease are from the in inflammation itself, and not so much because the, the bacterium is, is producing a poison or a toxin or anything like that. Inflammation is even the mechanism that makes the characteristic bullseye rash of Lyme disease. In order to make way for all your immune cells, blood vessels in your body dilate, they get bigger which means more blood is flowing through them, and on the outside, it can make your skin look red. But strangely, the center of the bullseye is where you'd be least likely to find the bacteria, because it's using those little outboard motors, motoring away from the tick, setting off the alarms as it goes, and making a break for it. The, the best place to find the bacteria at that point would be just beyond that leading edge. Leading edge. In other words, it's a race. A race between your immune response and the bacteria, which is trying to run and hide. Okay, let's zoom back out. This part of the infection is called early Lyme. At this point, it's still pretty much contained to the skin, around or at least close to where the tick bit you. Around the same time as the rash, patients might start feeling some other symptoms, also caused by the alarm system that's signaling the rest of the immune troops in the body. This would be fatigue, mild fever, a headache, all pretty much standard stuff. But sometimes it is literally just the rash. 
And here, I want to bring in our first case study from a listener who sent us this message. Her story is what I'll call the best case scenario. I was diagnosed with limes when I was 18 years old. Um, and I was sharing a bed with an outdoor cat and I found a tick in my armpit one day and uh, two days later the typical bullseye rash appeared and I had been just doing a report on Lyme's disease for my health class um, in 12th grade so I knew exactly what it was and I went to the doctor that day, got treatment, um, antibiotics for a month and I was fine from then on. Here's some good news. For many, if not most, of the 300,000-plus cases every year, this is pretty much the whole story. Lyme disease is caught fairly quickly and is treated without any serious lasting issues. Which is not to diminish the seriousness of the horror stories, which can understandably freak people out. It's just important to know that they are generally a minority of overall cases. So, in this best-case scenario, what happens next? The doctor orders a round of antibiotics, probably doxycycline, a drug that instead of killing the bacteria, sabotages its production and stops it from multiplying, which gives the patient's body time to build immune cells that specialize in hunting down the specific shape of those outer surface proteins we were talking about and gobble up the bacteria. And in a best-case scenario, that's exactly what happens. A couple days after taking antibiotics, the rash clears, the symptoms vanish, and all the patient has to deal with are the potential side effects from doxycycline. Sun sensitivity, difficulty swallowing, constipation, dark pee, stomach cramps, diarrhea, discoloration of teeth. You know, the usual. So how often do cases of Lyme disease resemble this best-case scenario? It's very hard to say, and here's why. In the early 2000s, Dr. Alan Steer, the same Dr. Steer who investigated the initial reports in Connecticut, published a study on the approximate number of people with Lyme disease who get a rash. And the answer is somewhere between 70 and 80 percent. But of those, only 20 to 30 percent really get that textbook bullseye look. Rashes could be oblong or red throughout or splotchy on the edges or a little bluish in the middle. In his paper, Steer acknowledged that the thousands who never get a rash or whose rashes aren't easily identified may not go to a physician. And quote, Lyme disease may not be recognized until the more debilitating, harder to treat late manifestations become apparent. If you're one of those thousands who don't get diagnosed, that little bacteria with its little outboard motors can outrun your immune response. It wins the race. It can lodge itself in your joints, in your brain, in your heart, and start to do some real damage. The rash is the most obvious sign of Lyme disease, but the problem with an obvious sign is that it can make you complacent, make it so you don't pay attention to the subtle signs that are harder to see. And that, in turn, can mean that there are a whole lot of patients that fall to the wayside. So people who came into the office with an expanding red rash uh, were the ones who enrolled in the research studies throughout the 80s and 90s and even today. This is Brian Fallon, director of the Lyme and Tick-Borne Diseases Research Center at Columbia University. And the reason is because there was no gold standard diagnostic test for early Lyme disease. So they had to rely on people who presented with a rash. That means that people who presented with viral-like or flu-like symptoms who didn't recall or see the rash, they were not being studied. It means that people who complained of severe fatigue and cognitive problems that started 
after a tick bite, they were not being studied. Today, we know lots more about what happens when Lyme disease isn't a best-case scenario, when the symptoms aren't caught early. But we don't know everything, and Lyme world thrives on ambiguity. One of the problems with the Internet is that there's so much information out there, it's very hard for patients to know what's real and what isn't real. It's hard for reporters, I'll tell you, too. (laughs) Yeah, and it's hard for me, too. On the next episode... Worst case scenarios. I couldn't open my right eye and the right side of my face was totally paralyzed. And we put the Lyme disease tests under the microscope. If you had an alternative point of view, you could accurately say that Lyme testing and early Lyme disease is worthless. It's 50-50. That's a truthful statement. But it's not designed for that. That's next time on Patient Zero. Patient Zero is produced and reported by Taylor Quimby. Remember, if you've supported Outside In in the past, we have a bonus feed of extra episodes just for donors. You should have gotten an email about it. If you didn't, shoot us a note at outsidein at nhpr.org, and we'll get you instructions on how to access it. If you want to donate so you can hear the extras, you can give at patientzeropodcast.org. Also, even if you're not a donor, you should listen. Listen back to hear the history of how the disease was discovered. And coming up, we've got a whole episode about why even knowing if you've got Lyme disease or not is so confusing. Editing help for this episode came from Annie Ropeek, Jason Moon, Corey Princell, Justin Paradise, Jimmy Gutierrez, Nick Capodice, Jackie Helbert, and Todd Bookman. I am serving as Patient Zero's senior producer. Eric Janik is executive producer. Fact-checking for this episode by Amy Tardiff. Graphics by Sarah Plord. Maureen McMurray is director of content. Patient Zero's theme was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Additional music in this episode from Jason Moon, Blue Dot Sessions, and Disasterpiece. Patient Zero is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. 